You're listening to Thunder Quack Podcast Network. Hi, this is Roy Thomas, and you're listening to the Epic Marvel Podcast. Hello, this is the Epic Marvel Podcast. I'm your host, Curtis Findlay. And today, as of this recording, we are in the middle of uh, the COVID-19 pandemic. If you're listening to this in the future, I hope that the world has gotten back to normal by now and that we're all back to our regular routines and that everybody is over this this illness and that it's passed, it's done, um, and we've moved on as a society. But right now, it's kind of a weird time. A lot of people are doing things online uh, to reach out to people and keep up community, and and you know I've, we've been seeing a lot of um, a lot of people doing live streams or Instagram live videos and showing off their cooking skills or teaching you how to draw things or you know the the, the ten push up challenge is another one. Well, I kind of want to get in on the action too. So every day during this isolation period, I've been live streaming on Facebook. It's been on my podcast's Facebook page, facebook.com slash epicmarvelpodcast. And I pick a different time each day so that I can reach out to people on various different parts of the world. And every day I talk about one issue of What If. The first day I did it, I started with issue number one and I moved forward. And I, these are very handy because I can compile them into episodes now and release them for all of you who listen to my podcast. My original intention was to have people come on to the show and as I'm live streaming and be part of the live stream broadcast and I would just I just wanted to let the fans know about it and get them to come on the show but people have been pretty hesitant about that I've only had one person join me on my stream so far and you'll hear her later in this episode so if you are listening to this and we are currently still in this pandemic Hop on over to Facebook and see the times when my latest uh, live stream is going to be and join me for it. I would love to have you on the on the live stream. You can do it from your phone. You don't have to have any special equipment. You just have to push the link, which I put in the comments, and then you can join my broadcast. And I would love to have you on. I want to talk more about these issues with fans. So you can take a listen to this episode, get a feel for what the kind of things I'm talking about. You can get a feel for what it's like to be a um, a co-host when you listen to uh, Pierce when she's on one of the issues later on in this episode. And then we'll have a fun time. So I will sporadically post more What If episodes um, as the weeks go by, since I'll have all of this content kind of built up, so you'll be able to enjoy those through the podcast stream if you can't make it over to the live streams. But anyway, let's get on with the show. These are uh, edited down versions of my live streams. Here is What If numbers one through six. Roy wanted to tell uh, to tell these stories, and so he pitched the idea. He had an opportunity to do a, a new ongoing series that was double size, and so he pitched this idea of what if. 
what if all of these things happened? And, uh, and it took off. The original series lasted for quite a while, a few years, and then it went on to even greater glory in the 80s and 90s. And we're going to talk about those uh, in this live stream podcast here. I've also pulled up, as you can see, uh, Marvel Unlimited, and so we can have some access to, we can see some of the drawings uh, and see some of the artwork, and I'll make that a little bit bigger in a little bit. But yeah, why don't we uh, talk about what if number one? So let's see, I'll make this screen a little bit bigger so we can see it. What if Spider-Man joined the Fantastic Four? Now, a lot of these what if stories, of course, have already kind of... Uh, being folded into continuity in some ways. Now, Spider-Man has joined the Fantastic Four. He joined the Fantastic Four. Well, he was part of the new Fantastic Four, which I don't think actually really counts in Walt Simonson's run. But he joined the Fantastic Four in Jonathan Hickman's run. He was part of the team when Johnny Storm was presumed dead. And uh, so this story doesn't have anything to do with that. In fact, the, the, yeah, the Hickman story doesn't have anything to do with this as well. It's its own thing. It's what if in Amazing Spider-Man number one, when Spider-Man goes to ask the Fantastic Four for a job, what happens if they accept him into the job? And a lot of things happen. One of the first things I want to say uh, is that this story, it, it starts off so well with the, having the Watcher as the main character. Uh, it's just incredible to... to form a whole series around him because, of course, he sees everything. So he's the perfect host for this. And it has a real Twilight Zone type feel where he is talking to us, the audience. He's directly talking to the fourth wall, telling us about all of the different various universes and alternate realities he's seen. In fact, there is a really, really great splash page, a double page spread right here, uh, where he talks about these different realities of stuff that did happen in the comics, including you can see Kill Raven down in the bottom. That was War of the Worlds. Uh, there's the Squadron Supreme, and there's even a reference in the very, very middle of the of the comic here to Spider-Man versus Superman, uh, because that happened in an alternate reality as well. So very, very cool. These we're exploring all these different realities, and um, and then the one we want to talk about, Spider-Man and Fantastic Four. He recaps the origins of Peter Parker and the Fantastic Four. And then we go into a couple of pages that are lifted pretty much directly from Amazing Spider-Man number one. Uh, of course, it's not Steve Ditko that's drawing these ones, it's Jim Craig. And it's really interesting to see how Jim Craig draws these, these same exact same panels, it, like the composition, the layout, everything is exactly the same. It's just in his style instead of, instead of Ditko's style. And if you've read this issue many, many times like me, then you will definitely recognize a lot of these, like, uh, like when, he's, <laughs> when he's stretched really big to prevent Spider-Man from getting by. Uh, they're just, it, this is just fantastic stuff. So the re one of the reasons why this is a double size issue is because they do a lot of recap in order to bring us up to the point uh, where something is different. There's always that part at the beginning of what-if stories where we have to we have to know a little bit about the background of how, you know, how the story usually goes until something is a little bit, a little bit different. Um, the thing that's different is that um, they, they accept Spider-Man into the group. And when they do that, it takes us through a few of the different 
issues like you can see chameleon here from uh, amazing spider-man number one it references the vulture the vulture story from uh, amazing spider-man number two we get into the uh the super apes which is fantastic for number 13 which happens to be the first appearance of the watcher as well and then it kind of brings us to the point where we get into fantastic Four number 14 where the puppet master takes over uh submariner's mind now the difference here is that spider-man is on the team and they go to the blue area of the moon to fight the red ghost but only four people can go in the rocket ship and so sue has to stay behind and she gets very jealous of spider-man that he gets to be in all the go on all the adventures and have all the attention and she has to stay behind uh so uh, what i really think is interesting here is that spider-man is treated like a big-time hero whereas in the comics at, when he doesn't join the Fantastic Four, especially because J. Jonah Jameson is is spearheading this campaign to smear him, uh, he's treated as an outsider. But once he's with the Fantastic Four, the Fantastic Four have the celebrity status that Peter Parker is now, uh, he's now a celebrity too. Well, they, they don't know he's Peter Parker. Spider-Man is a celebrity as well. Peter is treated quite differently, I think, in this one. Uh, Jim Craig draws him... Uh, like an adult, where he's actually supposed to still be a teenager in this story. It's a weird tug between whether he, like, he's got the immaturity still of being a teenager and his hot-headedness that Ditko always put in Peter Parker's character, but he looks much more grown up, so it's kind of strange. He's got a more Romita style to his, his physique and such. So I think that that kind of doesn't work to the to the advantage of uh, this thing here. This is a much more Ramita-looking Spider-Man than a Ditko-looking Spider-Man. Doesn't look like an awkward teenager, but he still is brash and hot-headed, and so uh, causes some interesting interplay between the characters. I'm a fan of Jim Craig. I think his artwork is really nice here. He does some really cool splash pages, like check out this splash page of the Vulture kind of recapping what would have happened if the Fantastic Four were in on all of the action in Fantastic Four number two. He, he His composition is really unique. He doesn't use any lines in order to capture the the action. He, he in fact, is a lot of the, uh, the word balloons. You can see uh, these text boxes are dividing up the panels in this direction, and they're dividing up the panels kind of in this direction here as well. And so they they create, and of course this whole burst right here is dividing up the whole image as well. And so yeah, we get uh, the sense of flow through here, but it's not really actually uh, divided up by panels. So I think that's really cool. And he does that a number of times, especially through these montage ones. Uh, let's find another montage. Uh, yeah, this one actually has panel breaks as well, but it's this one's cool because you get the Human Torch uh, drawing your eye down from this bubble, the Human Torch, you follow the action of this panel all the way down here, and then your eye is brought back up here so that you can return back to the top of the panel and come back down. So the flow, Jim Craig really, uh, really worked at the flow of this panel, and it works really, really well. I totally think that's an excellent panel. Um, Jim Craig is a guy that doesn't get much attention. He's... Um, yeah, I don't know. He just doesn't, uh, he's not a name that you hear very often, but he does really nice stuff here. And a lot of the, this is because uh, the inker is Pablo Marcos, you can see right here. And 
Pablo Marcos is a, a really, really good inker. He's actually one of my favorites of this era. I did a lot of work on like Avengers and stuff and is just fantastic. Puts a lot of effort, a lot of detail into the work and is very, very cool. So Sue acts a little bit differently in this one. She typically, the way Stan wrote Sue is um, she's got a lot of personality, uh, but when push comes to shove, she usually sort of stays stays in the background. Uh, there are certain times that she comes out and is more forceful, but uh, usually she plays second fiddle to, especially to Reed, of course. And in this one, she decides that she doesn't want to do that anymore. And driven by the fact that Peter Parker is on the team and is is hogging some of the glory and being a, a little bit of a showboat about it. And she realizes that Reed is going along with it and doesn't want to, uh, doesn't, you know, she's the, the pick for the one to stay behind. I think one of the words is something like, it's no place for a lady. Or maybe Ben says that about, about Alicia. But anyway, uh, so she decides to seek out Namor. And in the end, when uh, Namor is about to try and take over the world, she decides to stay behind and stay with Namor, which is something she doesn't do in Fantastic Four number 13. And this, I think, is really important because uh, when you go through Fantastic Four through the years, you can see that Sue is the most consistent person uh, on the team. She is, she's always a very, very steady force, a steady uh, personality. She's always there to, to keep the team going, to keep the team together. It's because other members come and they go or they die or whatever. Sue always stays there. She's always the same. And, and therefore, when, she, when it comes to doing things like putting yourself at risk, um, she's often the person that will that is willing to do it, but then sometimes gets like, you know, no, 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 don't worry about that. I'll do it. Kind of an, kind of an attitude from the other three. But in this time, the future rests on her shoulders and she takes matters into her own hands and decides to stay with Namor. Now, some might be like, that's, that's terrible. She is going, to, going into a relationship under duress, <laughs> which is true. But, you know, for the sake of the, for the many, uh, she sacrifices herself and her, her livelihood. And Namor creates this wild experiment where... He turns her into an Atlantean so she can no longer breathe on land. And, uh, and in the end here, let's see if I can find these panels. They, uh, yeah, Reed, Reed laments, but now maybe she can be the Submariner's conscience and thus the surface world's protectors more than ever before. I'll try to pretend that that means more to me than losing the only woman I've ever loved. And, and Spidey says... I can't help feeling responsible for all this, all what Sue had said. And maybe if I hadn't joined the FF and upstaged her so that she felt left out, things might have been differently. And I love that Johnny says, uh, whatever will be, will be. It's fate. Kismet. There's nothing any of us can do about it. If you'd never joined the FF, things would probably have worked out exactly the same. I love that. I, I, I think that's a, such a great little... Nod to us because we know, of course, that's not the way. And it's so it's so Twilight Zone. It's like they this is destined to be happen, destined to happen, but it's really not the case. And then the Watcher, there's a great truck out where the Watcher says goodbye to us. I am the Watcher, uh, and it's just such a a well thought out issue. 
And if the whole series like is like this, and I haven't read all of What If, this is going to be a really, really cool series. Issue number two. What if the Hulk had the brain of Bruce Banner? This is an interesting book because, or an interesting story, because this is uh, actually a story that's being visited several times over the course of Hulk's history. Now, uh, even Roy Thomas did it during his run. He gave Hulk an intelligent mind at one point, and uh, I think every creator has kind of dabbled with that now and then. Of course, most notable Peter David's run when when the Hulk had uh, had a smart mind and he was also still big and green. Uh, and then, you know, this sort of thing kind of happens here and there. And he always reverts back to his, his original form. But they love playing with the fact that, well, what if he had the strength and the intellect to boot? And so this is kind of one of those first times. However, the twist in this story is what if had uh, the mind of Bruce Banner right from the beginning? Like there was no point in the Hulk's history where he was a mindless monster. He was always smart, right from the right from the get-go. Very, very interesting, I think. So, let's see here. I've pulled up Mar uh, Marvel Unlimited. So, the first thing to note is that What If Number 2 is written by Roy Thomas and drawn by Herb Trimpey. It's a reuniting of the two people who kind of took over after Stan Lee and um, a series of kind of rotating artists, Steve Ditko and Jack Kirby and whatnot, kind of left the book. By this time in 1977, when the book came out, Len Wein and Sal Buscema were long into their, their run on The Incredible Hulk. And so this is uh, it's nice to have Roy back, and it's nice to have uh, Herb Trimpey back as well. He's doing, uh, doing his thing. You can see from this double-page spread that um, he's still dynamic as ever. I love in the top corner here, the guy in the helicopter, he says, Eggman to Walrus. Of course, that's a Beatles reference. That's cool. But anyway, so let's carry on through here. So as with the last issue, um, actually, this is different from the last issue because right now we're seeing a little bit of what Hulk is doing in present day. We're, we are being reminded that the Hulk is a mindless monster. He is, he is a hunted everywhere he goes. He just wants to be left alone in peace and quiet. Then the Watcher says, but what if something different happened? And then we get to see some pages from Incredible Hulk number one. They're not exactly the same like Jim Craig did with the, with the Amazing Spider-Man number one in, the, in uh, What If number one. These panels are taken from the actual issue, but they're sort of reimagined and reformatted, I guess, by Herb Trimpey for this issue here. So we have, uh, and you can see a lot of the famous like Gamma Bomb exploding panel right here. Rick Jones playing his harmonica. They're all, they're all the same, um, just drawn by Herb Trimpey. Let's get, sorry, let's make this bigger so you can see it. Billy says, hi, hi, Billy. Glad that you could be here with us. Okay, let's continue on here. So what happens is Bruce Banner gets the, he turns into the Hulk, but he is all of a sudden he's smart. And the wonderful thing about this is that he is able to explain himself. So of course he, right away, he makes friends with Rick. He makes friends with Betty. He makes friends with General Ross. Um, and he's able to, he doesn't, he doesn't kill Igor, he stands trial, and then the, the, the interesting thing here is that a lot of these plans still happen even though the Hulk 
has his mind. Like he, uh, Igor still radios the gargoyle, and the gargoyle still confronts the Hulk. But now instead, the Hulk, being an intelligent and smart person, finds the common ground between the two characters, and they become, uh, they become partners in science. <laughs> and so Igor goes back to Russia, and tries to. Um, you know, use his intellect for good. So I like that. I think that's an interesting thing here, especially since the 60s was the height of the Cold War. Of course, Roy is writing this in the 70s, in the late 70s, so the attitude toward Russia is different, but it would be interesting if they wrote it that way, that the Russian communist Russians were not the same sort of enemy, that they were working together for a greater good. So... Uh, that would have dramatically changed the landscape, I think, of Marvel superheroes. Um, so later on, one of the things that we find out here is that um, Reed Richards brings Bruce Banner into the Four Freedoms Plaza, or the Baxter Building, I guess, at this time, uh, to help cure the thing. And when the thing is cured, the Fantastic Four is now dissolved because uh, they don't have that same powerhouse. They're not as effective. I don't know why they couldn't just be the Fantastic Three because the others still have their powers, but anyway, they break up. The other thing is that because Banner has his mind, he doesn't wreck that train track uh, at the beginning of Avengers number one when he's mind-controlled by Loki, and so the Avengers have no reason to band together, so the Avengers are never formed. So now we have no Fantastic Four, we have no Avengers, and then later on, Reed Richards and Bruce Banner become partners... And who should come in the door and is Professor Xavier. He wants to be part of this brain trust that the three of them are going to make the world a better place. So he never creates the X-Men. So now we have no FF, no Avengers, no X-Men. You can see the road that we're going down here. It's very interesting. Just the simple fact that Bruce Banner was not a mindless monster meant that the world's, the three greatest teams in the Marvel Universe cease to exist. They just don't happen. That's going to be bad news. Uh, and I find it funny seeing these three together because it's like we know that the Illuminati during um, Bendis' run on Avengers, the Illuminati sort of come together and they have uh, all of the smartest people in the Marvel Universe and then they send the Hulk into outer space. But this is sort of like the forming of the Illuminati. It's the three smartest people in the Marvel Universe at this time here. And uh, and yeah, so then Galactus comes, and of course, because the Fantastic Four are not a team, they don't have the right defenses to to stave off Galactus's attack. So I love that they are playing like they bring in um, this huge event from Fantastic Four. It doesn't even happen in the Hulk comics, but it's a big event for the Marvel Universe. So what do they do? The invention that the three of them were working on, uh, they they hook themselves up to it, and they they become this big monster. Uh, they call him, him themselves the X-Man, and it's the combined, I don't know even what it is, the combined force, the combined bodies and the co combined minds of all three of those creatures. The whole thing comes full circle, of course, because um, they defeat Galactus, and I, there's one line in here that the Watcher says that I wanted to point out here. He says, on your world, Galactus was defeated by the ultimate nullifier, which I, in oath-breaking concern, placed in the hands of the Fantastic Four. Yet, I now know, as I did not then, that there was another way. I think that's pretty cool. 
uh, because of course why would the watcher be telling this story like the watcher said the only way to destroy galactus was the ultimate nullifier but now he's since he's watching these other parallel stories and other universes unfold he now knows that there is another way to defeat and it was the power of xavier's mind combined with with uh with uh, richards and banner uh in the end the the thing through the through a series of unfortunate events the thing gets transformed back into the thing and he's not the same now he's mindless and he runs off and he now becomes what the hulk is uh and and then ross dedicates his life to going against going off against the the thing so we do have that hulk character sort of it it's kind of a weird ending because nothing's really resolved usually in these what if issues life sort of i don't know if it goes back to normal or everybody dies but there are probably a lot more stories that can be told in this this incredible hulk universe where the hulk is smart one note about this issue when they've been reprinting what ifs when they did the old what if classic volumes like a decade ago some of the scans were not that great and when they did this what if complete collection uh, they must have found some better scans so some of these issues look better but this issue in particular looks the same and you can see in this panel with ross here on the last page of this issue so much of the detail is lost look at the the, the people in the army that are running for their fighter jets you can barely tell that they're here the, the wall in behind ross should be completely solid behind ross's head here on this wall to create the shadow look but so much of the fine details and, and the lines on Ross's face, they're lost because of, of, I guess, they couldn't find any good material to use to scan. And if they scan just a regular comic book, um, when they strip away the color, I'm sure a lot of the detail, the fine detail was lost there. So that's unfortunate because there is some uh, pretty nice artwork from Herb Trimpey. He uses great, makes great use of the zipitone patterns and and stuff, but it's just some of it is is lost, unfortunately. There's a great splash page of the Watcher here, just his head. Yeah, you can see that some of the details lost here as well, because there should be zipitone patterns underneath his eyes. You can see some of them, but that fine detail is lost. I think that this page would look even better when you have that those the patterns here, but still a cool looking picture of the Watcher though. Herb Trimpey did this a lot in his run with uh, Roy Thomas in Hulk. He would use full pages for just a head. So it would be a full page of just one giant head. Uh, so that's kind of cool that he's still doing that here in the 70s. Herb is also one of those guys where, you know, sometimes he's really great and sometimes he's not. These panels here look excellent. Lots of detail. Composition, of course, is taken from uh, Kirby, so can't help but be him be pretty good here. But then there are some panels where the drawings are just not that great. I'm thinking of page 18 here. It just looks rushed. The amount of detail the in, the, in Betty's face, Thaddeus's uh, legs look like they're too short. Just not a great panel. <laughs> so sometimes he looks awesome, sometimes he doesn't. Uh, I think he might have been rushing. These are double-sized issues, and at this point the book was bi-monthly, so he... I don't know what Trimpey was working on at this time, otherwise, but he had two months to work on this book. I don't know that I have a whole lot more to say about about this comic here, 
there's just some really great moments. Um, I, I totally enjoyed how they wove it into the the origin stories of so many different Marvel superheroes. Uh, I loved how it tied into the um, coming of Galactus story. If you're reading this and you don't know the original stories these are talking about, the the two epic collections that you need in order to fully appreciate this story are the the first Hulk epic collection. This is um, Hulk epic collection number one, Manor Monster, and it has the origin story of the Hulk. So you get to see the original story there, and then of course you'll want to get the third Fantastic Four epic collection, The Coming of Galactus, to see how the 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 whole story unfolds in Marvel Universe six one six. Uh, Richard Fong, let's see here. I'm going to show your comment here. Richard Fong says, I thought this was a fun issue, and I really enjoyed it when it came out. That's cool that you were on board when it actually came out. I, I've read a few What If issues here and there, but I was never a regular reader, so a lot of these I'm experiencing for the first time. Very, very cool stuff. Uh, I'm, I'm looking forward to exploring more of these stories. Thanks, Richard, for your comment. Uh, let's see. I just want to point out that there there are letter pages in this collection, in the complete collection. Uh, the letter pages are not something that is usually collected when in these trades, but this one does. And there are some very interesting letter pages. And in fact, this one here, the letter page for issue number two, has a letter from Mark Grunewald before he started working for Marvel. Um, it's talking about how much he loves the idea of what if. Uh, issues hadn't even come out yet and people were already writing into Marvel saying how much they were looking forward to this and he makes a couple of suggestions that eventually I think all of them do become what if issues <laughs> eventually so he had uh, some really really good ideas actually Roy who's the editor says in his response to Mark that he had already thought of all those ideas and they were already all in the schedule. So he says, in other words, we hereby present you with our Mad Prophet of the Month Award, which, curiously enough, is utterly indistinguishable from one of our fabled no prizes. So <laughs> that's pretty funny. Zachary says, hi. Zachary, finally get to see one of these live. Glad that you're here. So I have, um, I have Marvel Unlimited right beside me here. Another comment here. Let's see here. Tommy asks, are you doing one issue per day? Yes, Tommy, I am. Uh, for every day that we are kind of in lockdown or in isolation, I'm going to do a live stream of one issue of What If per day as for as long as this takes. So if we're here for 100 days, I'll do 100 issues. Hopefully it's not going to be that long, but they're talking months, so we could probably at least get through the entire first series and then move, maybe even move to the second series. Not sure. But uh, good to see you, Tommy. Tommy is my, uh, my Avengers co-host. We've been working through the 90s Avengers together on the Epic Marvel podcast. So listen to those ones. Those are great episodes. He's a lot of fun to be with. Uh, this also here, Avengers number one, Earth Mightiest Heroes. This is a good a good volume to have on hand because the stories that we're going to be talking about today directly reference a few of the stories that happen in Avengers, those early issues of Avengers. Uh, okay, so in this one, the Avengers, what if the Avengers have never been? It's written, or it says it's co-plotted by Jim Shooter and Gil Kane with inks by Klaus Janssen, which is very cool. The, the combination of Gil Kane and Klaus Janssen is really, really good. Uh, they are an excellent team. The plotting of Gil Kane, of course, is top-notch, and, and Klaus Janssen gives this excellent, excellent 
moody feel to all of the work here. Uh, as you can tell straight away from this one panel with the Hulk, really great use of dynamic bold brush strokes uh, to give Gil Kane's very loose work. He He's a loose penciler to give it um, a lot of just good solid atmosphere. What else do we need to know here? Oh, Archie Goodwin's the editor. I thought that uh, Roy Thomas was, but it looks like Archie Goodwin is now. This is a recap. This splash page is a recap from Avengers number two. Right off the bat, uh, the Hulk leaves the team, and the Avengers go after the Hulk in order to make sure that he's not going to cause any problems, because at this point, Hulk doesn't have his own title. He had the, the first six issues, but that was canceled, and so he only has, um, he only appears sporadically in the other books in the Marvel Universe at this point, and so he's in the Avengers for the first two issues, or first three issues, I think, but not really as a part of a team. He quits the team right off the bat. Everybody has to go after him, and uh, instead of banding together and solidifying as a team, they start arguing and talking about how much they don't agree with each other, and eventually Thor storms off, and Giant Man and Ant Man, or Giant Man and Wasp storm off as well, and they, uh, the team is done. It's only Iron Man left, and this is sort of true to the way we know Iron Man. He, if he has an idea in his head, he gets, he just sticks with it. There's nothing, that, there's nothing you can do to change his mind. He has an idea, and he's going to go through with it. So he contacts uh, Rick to find out where the Hulk is and, they, and tries to go after the Hulk, and it doesn't work. And so he decides that he needs to take matters into his own hands. Meanwhile, Namor and Hulk form an alliance, and that's what happens in Avengers number three. And so, so the events that normally play out behind the scenes are still playing out in this alternate reality, this alternate universe, but the only thing is that there's no Avengers. Um, I really like this, that Iron Man now creates new Iron Man armor for everybody, well, except for Thor. Thor doesn't show up through the rest of this book, but for Giant Man and Ant-Man and Rick Jones, Rick gets to be part of the action as well. Uh, they all have this iron armor to go after the Hulk. So he kind of does get the Avengers back together again. They don't call themselves the Avengers, and no one's making any formal commitments, but he does still kind of form the team. So there's some great conversation here, great dialogue from Iron Man and, and Wasp and, and Giant Man as they try the suits out. I'm reminded of the scene from the first Iron Man where he's flying for the first time and kind of goes crashing into walls and cars and stuff. Uh, the same thing happens here because it takes a little bit of work and it's it's nice it's a nice bit of levity in the middle of the story as well because you know some heavy things especially coming up some heavy things are going to happen i was making some notes about the the quality of the scans in the last issue this issue has great scans and it's most notable because you can see all the zipatone pattern here is perfectly reproduced looks excellent my only beef is that the coloring is a little wonky you can see that they like go outside of the lines a lot there's a lot of the airbrushed look the soft edges it's just kind of sloppy and this is all throughout this issue so while the line work is good the coloring is not Tommy says I haven't read Earth X yet but it seems to me it was the inspiration for the Iron Avengers team that appears in this series in this limited series that's very true. I haven't read Earth X yet either, so I can't say for sure, but it's very possible. It wouldn't be the first time that Iron Man has a, an army of iron soldiers. <laughs> we can see 
like kind of happens in Iron Man 3 in the movies as well. So the one one of the big struggles in this one is the Iron Man powers himself up, but he also is very aware that he needs the power in order to keep his heart powered because of course at this time he still is worried about uh, the the damage to his heart from the origin story. So there's this pull of wanting needing to protect himself, but also uh, doing what's right, which is a very common story in these early tales of suspense days of Iron Man. And so now we see Iron Man and Hulk in the battle with, well, sorry, Iron Man battling Hulk and Submariner together. Uh, and this is play, this is played out in, um, in Avengers number three, except <laughs> Iron Man's by himself. And he actually holds his own really well. I love these layouts by Gil Kane, especially this page here with the Hulk. Um, as you see, all of the action is played out really well. He goes this way and in this panel, He's doubling back, and then just if you follow these ones here, he falls down. You can sense the action at the same time. These guys are kind of going around in a circle, which brings us into this little swoop here to this bottom panel. It's just really brilliant laid out, so the action, the choreography of these characters plays out really, really well. Super well done. And then an excellent, excellent splash page of uh, Iron Man electrocuting the Hulk. And again, if we want to zoom in here to see some of the, the detail look at this you can see that the the patterns in behind are really really nicely reproduced it's a good quality scan Zachary says the splash page is awesome yes it certainly is uh, I agree carrying on here Iron Man does a really really good job of holding his own uh, even after going toe-to-toe -to -toe with the Hulk he still manages to have some strength left to battle Submariner um, these these fights are just excellent I love this splash page it, it's it starts at the bottom which is unusual and goes all the way up and then launches you into this top panel and brings you all the way down to these stacked panels so you can do this your eye does this u shape uh that's an interesting layout a bold choice and i like it that's gil kane for you and then the other avengers join the team so this is again another great battle that it, it's kind of it, like i said before it's strange that the Avengers are basically together here for this final battle again, um, but a little bit too late because Iron Man is so weak, and throughout this whole issue, he's expending more and more of his energy, and finally he has to use the last little bit to to restore Giant Man's armor so that he is saved and ends up sacrificing himself. Rick Jones, here's one thing. Rick Jones has the power to uh, to become unstable, kind of like the Vision, so he can pass through solid objects. That's the that's what his armor allows him to do. Uh, so if Rick Jones were to become a, a superhero, then this uh, would maybe be... Well, I mean, he has become a superhero over the years a number of times. But here's another instance of Rick with a, a different power set. Again, a really nice nice layout of these of this panel. Another Hulk fight. And then a very, very poignant scene at the very end where we see that uh, Hulk, uh, that Iron Man or Tony Stark's heart has finally given out. Very, very touching. Um, this is what the what-if issues are known for. It's like, because that one thing happened, something horrible ends up happening. And the horrible thing, the last two issues, that didn't really happen. They still save the day, managed to figure out how to to go on with life as usual. But in this issue, Tony Stark pays the ultimate price and uh, 
and that's that's too bad. Hopefully, this isn't a spoiler to people. <laughs> this, is, I mean, absolutely, this is a spoiler. I'm hoping that you are going to read these issues in more detail because uh, it's really good. Jim Shooter, at this point in the late '70s, was uh, working on Avengers, I think, and he he doesn't pull his punches when he writes. I, I actually, you know, say what you will about Jim Shooter, he I like his writing. And this is one of these issues where he just kind of goes all in. Most of the issue is fighting one big battle after the other. It's like, you know, they, they square off against each other and then more people come in and square off against the same people. And a majority of it is just back and forth fighting, but it's, it's not boring. Uh, sometimes the fight scenes can get long drawn out and I'm just kind of skimming through the pages or so. But because I think I'm giving most of the credit to Gil Kane's artwork, and his layouts that it just keeps it moving at a really really good pace some of the the best action sequences uh, that i've seen come out of this era in this in this issue here so it's, that's pretty cool tommy says the tragic aspect is brought up to 11 in the second what of series in all its grim and gritty glory and that's so true and that's what i mean by by the the tragic aspect it's like Almost in every issue, everybody dies or the planet blows up or a galaxy is destroyed or <laughs> something happens. That I can't wait to get to those issues because it just goes in some ridiculous directions. They're, these first what-if issues are fairly reserved compared to just the, the loony nature. I think they figured that they can get away with so much uh, once they figured out that these are stories in alternate realities that, that can just go anywhere <laughs> and so they they don't try to keep it the same at all tommy says for me what if number three volume one is the one of the best issues yeah this is an excellent issue it's definitely the the best out of the three that i've read so far and um i've only read you know a small handful of these what if issues over the years so it's nice to see this story progress now Originally, Roy Thomas was going to write all of these, but then he got the idea um, that he wanted the actual writers of whoever's writing the comics to to write them instead. So that's why Jim Shooter's doing this one, because he was on Avengers. And then in the next issue, what is the next one here? What if the invaders had stayed together after World War II by Roy Thomas and Frank Robbins, who were the the creative team behind the Avenger, or the Invaders series, ongoing series that was happening at the time as well. So that makes sense. What if the Invaders had stayed together after World War II? What if number four, issue number four, what if the Invaders had stayed together after World War II? What If Number 4 is a very different what-if issue, uh, mostly because it's not actually a what-if at all. It's a story that, it's kind of, it's a long story. Now, because The Invaders, The Invaders was a title that was actually running at the time by Roy Thomas and Frank Springer, and those are the guys who do this issue as well. Uh, and they are, they're telling a whole bunch of, I guess, theoretical what-if stories that Roy kind of put into, uh, he, he kind of calls them, uh, it's, it's now regular continuity uh, about the, the fleshed-out career of Captain America and all the other guys during World War II. So the invaders happened. Now, the invaders never reached the end of World War II because 
that series is an ongoing series and you don't once they hit the end of world war ii then it's the end of the series so roy just kept on stretching and stretching out and creating new and more and more adventures and then the title got canceled and they never actually got to world the end of world war ii so this is the issue of when the invaders get to world war ii and what happens after that and it sets up a lot of stuff that's going to happen in captain america um and it sets up a lot of stuff uh, that's going to happen, of course, when Captain America gets thawed out of the ice in Avengers number four. So this, having said that, uh, there's no actual what if, there's no nothing that happens here that happens differently. It's all kind of worked into continuity. And um, if you go to the history of the Marvel Universe, you know the series that's come out just recently with Mark Wade and Javier Rodriguez? It's really, really a great series. The beautiful artwork all of these pages is just splash pages one right after another of wonderful wonderful stuff and so the second issue deals a lot with the world war ii characters like the invaders and such this is uh so if you go to the very end of this issue whoops that's not what i wanted go to the pages here scroll down there's always this big appendix section at the back which i love because they really show you uh, all of the material that's referenced here um, and we go over to these pages, it actually references this issue of what if as stuff that actually happened. You can see here at the bottom, the tale of the first two Captain America replacements is told in what if number four. So that's kind of cool. And then it also tells the tale of Human Torch killing Adolf Hitler, which is also told in what if number four. We'll get to that in a second. So these are actually worked into continuity. And let me see. So I want to read some of the letter pages. Now, if you're reading this on Marvel Unlimited, letter pages are not included, but they did include, uh, or at least I don't think it is. Let me see. Oh, yeah, they did include this one here. So I'm going to read a little section here at the bottom. So you can read along with me here because it's very, very interesting, uh, the history of this. It says, several years back, Roy was slated to take over writing chores on Captain America. Uh, he was all set to work on the mag with Gil Kane, one of his favorite action artists, and they had discussed several possible plot lines by phone. Some of these were Roy's ideas, some Gil's, some, and Roy's cho choice among his own brain children, though, was a storyline in which we learned that there was indeed a Captain America during the period from 1945 to 1963, when the original Shield Slinger was, according to Marvel history, encased in ice and floating around somewhere near Greenland. When other projects reared their heads, he, he forgot what they were, it's been so long ago, Roy and Gil bowed out uh, before setting pens and, and paper, and Ye Editor turned the general idea over to stainless Steve Englehart. And Steve took the theme and made it his own, and these became some of the most important Captain America issues ever. The only thing is, Steve decided that at the last minute to forget about the years 1945 to 1953 and have his substitute Captain America be a red baiter from the McCarthy era. This left a hole which a zillion Marvelites have never ceased, and properly so, to point out to us. Roy never one to want to come down hard on a writer or artist who wanted to do things his own way, preferred to let Steve E. do his thing. But he'd really wanted to take care of those immediate, immediate post-cap and post-war years as well. And this is his chance, and he's taking it. And then later on here, um, actually I'll get to that in a second. So let's talk a little bit about this issue. Captain America, 
uh, oh no, sorry, what if the invaders had stayed together after World War II? And for you, those of you who are just joining us, if you want to click the link down below, uh, you can join my stream and come and talk to me. Uh, I'd be happy to have you on. Um, I hope I get a notification about that. <laughs> Pierce is with us and she says this issue is complicated you know, need to know your MCU and that is kind of true in fact more than just your Marvel more than it's not just the Marvel Cinematic Universe you need to know your the history of Marvel Comics or maybe she means Marvel Comics Universe Marvel Comics in general because this dates way way back we were going to talk about some things that are way past uh, regular Marvel continuity. So let's have a look here. So first of all, we get this great splash page uh, with Captain America and Bucky busting in on Baron Zemo. There's a little foot footnote in the bottom here that says, See Avengers 56, which expands on the events on issue number four. So if you have issue number 56, which I've pulled it up over here. Oh, got to read it. Uh, this issue is a sort of a flashback story where Captain America is explaining the tale of uh, the, the death of Bucky. So let's skip ahead here till we get to that part here because we can see some of the exact same panels. Here is Captain America and Bucky busting in on Baron Zemo just as they do in this here. And so a lot of these first few pages, like they have done in the past few issues, are indeed um, bringing us up to speed with what's currently happening, uh, like actually, it's not word for word and it's not panel by panel, but the events with this big android guy were actually are actually here in What If as well. Now we get to this panel on the third page here, and, and Captain America says, Our bonds are severed by another version of my shield, and now it's fading away, but we're free. Um, this is because, and they don't go into this at all in the What If issue, but in the, in the Avengers issue, number 56, the modern-day Avengers somehow get teleported back to the days of World War II. Here we can see them here. Uh, re they're appearing right at the moment where Baron Zemo is about to kill Cap and Bucky. And then Captain America uses his shield uh, just before he disappears back to the present to free Steve. As we can see here, he throws his shield to sa save his past self. And there it is right here going, uh, you know, freeing them. It's the same panel, but they don't go into that at all. And it's a, they make a reference to that in the What If issue by saying, what happened next in that British-American aerodome is far too fraught with time paradoxes to discuss just now. <laughs> so that's what it is. I've just told you they, um, a lot of time travel in that issue there. Uh, but plans go ahead anyway, and Bucky does end up dying, and, and Cap falls into the, into the water, into the ice. And then the Watcher shows his head and tells us some things that we didn't know, uh, some things that happen after the events of the Invaders series by Roy Thomas. And we find out that Human Torch, the original Human Torch, goes to, and Toro goes to con confront Adolf Hitler, who is about to commit suicide because he's lost. They bust in, and they are actually the ones who end up killing Adolf Hitler. Uh, and then the government tries to cover it up. But that's, that's written into regular Marvel continuity for all you people, believe it or not. But... That is part of the official Marvel Universe history, according to the uh, Mark Wade series here. It's actually, it actually happened. Uh, continuing on here, then we follow the events of Namor, and then we then we come across the the Watcher wants to know what's up with uh, Spitfire. Where are they at? And where is is 
Union Jack. And it says, confused, see the text page at the story's end. Roy Thomas, why are we confused that Union Jack and Spitfire, for the sake of this story, it doesn't really matter, but I thought I'd give you a little bit of this history anyway. And that's something that is told at the back of this issue. It says, in addition to the foregoing unusual aspects of this fourth issue of What If, this month's outing is unique in still other ways. For one thing, it was plotted after and originally slated to appear after the upcoming Invaders Annual Number One. In it, Roy and Frank introduce both a new meeting place for the invaders during the darkest days of World War II and a pair of American and British liaison officers. However, due to various circumstances, the fates decreed that the What If story be published first. So, we'll have to hope that you accept this issue's fleeting glimpse on page 11 as a taste of things to come and pick up the annual when it hits the stands in a few short weeks. Uh, in addition to the sheer fact of an invader's annual with all new material, we think you'll dig the new to some of the golden age, blah, 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 blah. Uh, where does it go next? The final unique thing about what if number four, at least the final one that we know about, is that it reveals that not only is Spitfire with the invaders at the close of World War II, but also that Union Jack is back for another go around as well. And this will come as no great shock to many of you who've seen the last panel of the current 19th issue of the invaders, because we see Spitfire. Um, she hasn't joined the team yet in, inv in Invaders. Uh, she just appears at the end of 19, but it does tip our hand just a wee bit on number 20, which is Union Jack appears, which he, we haven't seen him show up in Invaders yet uh, either. So the reason why we're supposed, that says that we're going to be confused uh, is because technically they haven't joined the team yet. The people who would have been reading this at the time wouldn't have known what was going on. And so also here they set up base in Big Ben. This is the new headquarters that was revealed in Invaders Annual Number One, which people hadn't read yet. And these two guys here are the liaisons that uh, they're also introducing and will, will be regular occurring members for the remainder of the series. So that is all kind of weird. Oh, here's a great picture of them coming out of the Big Ben, out of their secret tower. So the big issue here is that these, these new liaison officers have have introduced a new Captain America and Bucky. They want the public, because they're such great icons, they want the public to to think that they're still around, to be to be the continue to be the symbol that, that they have been all the time uh, for the American public. But they realize the invaders are like, you're not fooling us, these aren't the real deal. They say, um, Namor says, Captain America has no dimple on his chin for one thing. And Human Torch says, and since when did Bucky have blonde hair and freckles? Yeah, you think they get the, at least the hair right. So it re it's revealed that the second Captain America is Spirit of 76, a character called Spirit of 76. And then the new Bucky is a guy named uh, Fred Davis, who appeared very, very briefly. Uh, and it says here down at the bottom, Invaders number 14 and 15 and Marvel premiere number 30. Now, if you have the Invaders complete collections or these invaders classics all of these stories are told here they include the annual they include marvel premiere 29 and 23 with the liberty legion um and and these are the ones that you want to get if you want more of this story so the rest of this issue is telling the story of the all the all the team coming together miss america the wizard the whole team comes together to become the invaders again and uh, help continue to fight because once 
Hitler dies, there's, the war doesn't end right there. There's still more to do, and especially with uh, the Japanese, they have to kind of clean up all of that mess. And so they do that, and they get involved in a plot um, to assassinate uh, President, or, or sorry, uh, JFK before he becomes president. Um, it's a because the guy who created Human Torch has created another android called Adam Two, and Adam Two is now going to try and take out the future president. And not that they know, and here he is right here, JFK. So through all of this, Captain America ends up fighting the, the ro more robots and androids, uh, and then we find out that he ends up dying, and another Captain America has to take his place. This time it's the Patriot. The Patriot took up Captain America's costume after he saw the Spirit of 76 die. So we now have two, this is the third Captain America. And so that's kind of what they're setting up is that Captain America, there were a few different people portraying Captain America through the 50s and uh, up until the time when Captain America, the real one was thought out and, um, and joins the Avengers in Avengers number four. How's the story overall? Um, it's not bad. It's it's interesting. It's really cool to see pieces of history, to, to meet these characters that, you know, I'm not too familiar with. What's the most fascinating part to me is this history of how Roy loves to try and tie everything together, how he really loves his continuity and uh, really, really brings, brings it all together. So that's the most interesting part to me. Pierce says this story became canon, didn't it? Yes, indeed it did. Um, it it is now part of the actual ongoing history, uh, and so from here, you can read those those Steve Englehart issues of Captain America and understand a little bit of how that all came to be. And yeah, I think it would be cool if we got some more more issues or more stories now told nowadays of what Captain America, these different Captain Americas, were up to through the fifties. Because that was a very interesting time that Marvel history just doesn't doesn't talk about. Because you have the the golden age of Marvel, which is World War II, and then the Silver Age Marvel, which is 1960s. There's that that lost generation, that lost gap right in there. The artwork is takes some getting used to. If Frank has definitely a very stylized, a little bit cartoony kind of a style. Um, that's one of the main things that I've heard that people don't like about the Invaders series is that they couldn't get on board with the artwork. Um, and now that a lot of it is, you know, there's some that's that's kind of weird and he uses some different inkers. So depending on the inkers, um, it's a little bit different, but he's got a very kind of golden age style to his work. And he's been around for, Frank's been around for a long time. So of course he's got a, a golden age style. Um, but, uh, and, and it works I think for the Invaders since they're trying to emulate that golden age time period but uh, it's some of the storytelling is a little hard to, to follow he, his layouts aren't always the greatest but it's still it's still an interesting story um, not my favorite issue of what if so far but one that I think is worth reading especially if you are fans of Captain America very important issue Man, if you're still with me through all of that, I appreciate it. Uh, it this That was a, uh, a lot of confusion there. I hope it's interesting. I hope that I made sense trying to explain it. Here's another comment from Pierce. She's one of the people. I do not like Frank Robbins' art. The characters look like action figures left at the bottom of a toy box with limbs all twisted all around. <laughs> You'll have to be your judge of that when you read the book for yourself. Um, but yeah, it's uh, it does get a little take a little bit of getting used to, and once you get used to it, I think you can you can enjoy it. But and maybe you won't get used to it, and that's fine. You know, art is subjective, and it, it, people have different tastes. 
let's see. What is the next issue? Let's see what it says here. What if number five, what if Captain America hadn't vanished during World War II? Before we start, if you haven't got this book, it's a really great one. Uh, with all of the, the first 12 what if issues, these, all the what if issues are double size. So you have um, a good fat book. It's like putting 24 um, issues into one because they're all double length. Uh, we all also have um, relevant to today's topic. We have Shield by Lee and Kirby and Shield by Steranko. These are great books uh, to to read if you want to learn more about what actually happened rather than this alternate version of what happened. Um, also relevant to today's discussion is the first Captain America epic collection, which tells his strange tale stories. These ones are important because a lot of them tell what happened during World War II, but it also tells the early days of him uh, in present day, which is very different from what's happening here. And then the Steranko issue of Captain America, where he battles the Hulk, um, is referenced as a critical moment in this story as well. So, uh, And that's found in the second Captain America epic collection called The Coming of the Falcon. Uh, let's see here. So... Let's see if Pierce is able to join our call today. Pierce, are you there? Hi, Curtis. Can you hear me? I can hear you. We did it. Yay. Yesterday, our, right. our, it didn't work quite well yesterday, but here we are uh, talking today. We're talking about Captain America. Wow, this is going to be an interesting, interesting story. Captain America, what if he hadn't disappeared during World War II? There's actually a lot of what-ifs in this one issue. The, the, a bunch of things happen that are like, well, what if this happened? What, what if that happened? And so we're going to kind of tackle all of those as we go through here. So uh, feel free to interrupt me anytime if you have something to say. So here it is. What if Captain America hadn't vanished during World War II? Well, I'm going to give you the floor first. Pierce, do you have anything you want to say about this issue? It's a good follow-up to uh, the last issue mm -hmm. that we've got, you know, yet another... Uh, World War Two, what if Captain America invaders? What if? So I like exploring uh, similar themes back to back like that. Yeah, it's kind of neat that they did put them back to back. They even referenced the same issue with Baron Zemo, the same uh, issue of Avengers number fifty six, the very beginning of this issue. Uh, which let me see, I'll pull that up right here. Right, that's a big turning point right there. Well, definitely, of course. <laughs> um, <laughs> And so, hold on, I want to just talk about this title first. Inside the issue, the title is, What if Captain America and Bucky had both survived World War II? It's not exactly the same as what they put on the cover. And that there is a, uh, uh, some people pointed out right. on Twitter to me yesterday, well, Captain America did survive World War II. <laughs> he just, he just wasn't around for the, for the 50s. The world didn't know it. <laughs> the world didn't know it. So the front cover has it more correct, where it says, what if Captain America hadn't vanished during World War II? But I think this story seems to be more of a Bucky story anyway than a Captain America story. Mm -hmm. It's really more about, about Bucky Barnes and his journey being in Cap's shadow and how he kind of steps out of that. So it was kind of neat to, to explore that side because it wasn't exactly what I was expecting. Would have been a big nostalgia issue for readers then. Yeah, I think so, especially because right here, Captain America would have only just had his own title for a fairly short time uh, because he was part of um, Tales of Suspense 
for a while. And those tales, a lot of them were telling the story of Captain America in World War II with Bucky. So readers would be very familiar with this. And then he got his own title in the late 60s. And I guess this is actually 10 years later. This is 1977. So Captain America's been going on for a long time. So it it is definitely nostalgia, a trip through nostalgia for readers at this time. For all of us, I guess. Um, We have our very first appearance from writer Don Glutt down at the bottom here. Don Glutt wrote uh, several of these early issues of What If here. Now, Roy, I I mentioned this in the previous episode, that uh, Roy had planned on having actual writers, like the people who were currently writing the story, do the What If stories. Uh, But that's not the case here. Don Glutt wasn't a writer, I think, on anything regular for Marvel. Actually, he was writing, he did finish writing Invaders after Roy stepped off the title, uh, right, right before it was cancelled. That, and then I think he was had a stint on Ghost Rider for a little while, but that's about as regular as it got for Don Glutt. Have well, Invaders heard? is certainly related to to this issue. I guess, I guess it is, except not really, because it doesn't take place. This issue doesn't take place in World War II, and it only really has. I mean, it's related in the fact that Captain America and Bucky were on the Invaders, but none of the other Invaders are in this issue. Um, George Tuska is the artist and George Tuska is a holdover from the golden age as well. So it's nice to have him back in the saddle here and, uh, and taking up the art chores. How do you like George Tuska compared to, I know that you're not a fan of Frank Robbins. <laughs> right. <laughs> I had to pick on him last time. Yeah. Uh, I, I like George Tuska better. Uh, this particular issue, it looks a little bit rushed. Like maybe they would have liked to have had a little more time to do it. You know, it's not bad. It's just, Looks like it needed a little refining. I think a lot of this has to do... There's some pretty poor restoration in this issue. Uh, And I always harp on this stuff here. I want to show you some of these pictures of some of the pages where like, the faces are even disappearing. Here, on page 30, look at this panel here. Of The the lines are just... They're just gone. These are terrible scans. You Mm. can't even see Dum Dum's face or Steve's... the, The details on Steve's eyes and mouth and hair... It's not very good, uh, and it only affects certain pages because you go to the next page here, and all of the lines are completely visible. See, they need you to do the restorations. Well, I mean, it only depends. These guys are completely capable of doing the restorations, but I think it depends on the materials that they have. They must not have very good quality um, comics to, to take the scans from. Otherwise, I'm sure they would have. I can't imagine they would let that go by willingly if they could help it. But then again, I've seen some other instances where I'm, I just shake my head, so I have no idea what they allow to pass and what they don't. Uh, okay, so getting into this issue, the first couple pages again are telling us the the information that we need to know uh, in order to get us up to speed to the current situation. And actually, there's a letter page that I want to a letter in this issue that I want to read just before we jump because mm-hmm. it relates to what I'm talking about here. Someone from Ontario, Canada. Mrs. Donna Farley says, 
I'm tempted to say that What If will be the finest magazine ever from Marvel, except for one thing. That is, if not for the many marvelous creations of Marvel, a mag like What If would not be possible. Still, before you get too conceited, let me give you some of the proverbial constructive criticism. I felt the Hulk story could have been better structured. The first ten pages were spent telling us things we already knew. If we didn't know them, then we wouldn't buy the mag. Uh, what if cannot be really appreciated by anyone who is not already familiar with the world of Marvel? I suspect you spent so many pages on the actual origin of the Hulk in order to clue in the uninitiated. However, I think few of them are likely to pick up this mag. So please dedicate what if to those of us who faithfully pick up your other magazines. What do you think about that comment? Yeah, that that's fair. A brief recap is is all it needs you know just a page or two like here's the story as you know it and then then move on 10 pages is too much 10 pages is a bit much i think that um they tried doing a couple of things they first tried telling us what was happening in the hulk currently so they spent a few pages on that which wasn't necessary at all um only giving us the origin story was was necessary which you can do in one page but i do think that you do need to have that because it provides the framing you have to have at least something at the beginning because it provides the framing for the story moving forward. So You do need at least a page or two. Definitely. And in this issue, we have one, two, three, four pages. On the fourth page is when the thing actually, when the change actually happens. Mm -hmm. And uh, Pierce, what is the exact moment that changes history here in this issue? Steve does not drop off the plane. And he, he helps Bucky to defuse the bomb. Exactly. So by defusing the bomb, Bucky does not die. And the, the plane is able to, I guess, safely crash into the water and the, the pair are saved. That's the first thing, major thing that changes. And because of that, the symbol of America stays consistent throughout the rest of the World War II. And the events that happen in the last issue where other people take over the mantle of Captain America... They don't have to take over that mantle of Captain America because Cap is still around. Mm-hmm. And then we flash forward to the end of the war uh, after everything is said and done. Oh, the second thing that happens is that Nick Fury dies during v- uh, the Vietnam yes. War. That's the other what if here. What if Nick Fury died and didn't go on to be the head of S.H.I.E.L.D., uh, which I think is also a fascinating story. Uh, because mm-hmm. S.H.I.E.L.D. plays so heavily in the Marvel Universe. Uh, and uh, what is the result of Nick Fury dying? Steve Rogers becomes head of S.H.I.E.L.D. Uh, well, they ask him to be head of S.H.I.E.L.D., but he declines. And then and then Bucky, Bucky becomes the head of S.H.I.E.L.D. Bucky Barnes does. <laughs> so, and this is great. I, I love seeing Bucky because, of course, we know him. We only know Bucky as either the plucky kid or as the hard-edged winter soldier winter soldier those are the only two versions of bucky that kind of have existed uh in regular marvel continuity so now we have a bucky that has grown up and he's resentful of being in captain america's shadow he doesn't like the fact that captain america like he's never been able to get past being just the sidekick right the kid sidekick even yeah even though now he's 10, 15 years older, because now we are into the 60s. Um, Actually, yeah, he's probably about 20 years older now. He and Captain America are probably about the same age now because the soldier serum is 
keeping Captain America from aging rapidly. That's what they say in this issue here. Right. And that, that poses a little bit of a problem yeah. uh, later on in the issue. Definitely. Yeah, this, is, uh, this was a really neat way just to see him, to see Bucky processing everything that's going on, uh, lamenting over the fact that he's you know, not, not as much into the action world anymore. And, and then we fast forward to this issue, this, uh, the scene with the Hulk. Uh, and it says it parallels incidents in Captain America at number 110. That is the Steranko issue of, um, of Captain America where the Hulk appears. A lot of fun. But Bucky's not in that issue because, of course, Bucky's dead. So, right. But in this one, Bucky is there. He saves Rick and realizes that he really enjoys getting back into the action as a superhero. Uh, and so he takes it matters into his own hands and then puts on the, the costume and decides he's going to be Captain America for now on. Uh, he, and he calls, he calls him out, you're too old to be playing Masked Crusader. Yeah, that, that's the problem with that is because, like you said, the super soldier serum should, you know, have evened them out. Yep. Or even, uh, I would think Steve would even still be stronger than Bucky. But. I think that it's more more of the fact that his age is too old, but it's just that Steve's time has come up. His ideals are different, like they're outdated, and like he he needs to move on and and, and do other things. And Steve tries to tries to fight back at that. <laughs> He's like, "Hey, look at these guns! I still got it." <laughs> <laughs> I love it. Uh, and then Rick Jones happens to be sitting there. It's like, well, you're going to need a sidekick. So I guess I'll be the sidekick. And now we have a yep. new Captain America. <laughs> and that's, and that's, that's good, too, because Rick Jones does become Bucky for a little while in the comics. So that's a l- little accurate. Rick Jones has the most interesting life of any Marvel character. No kidding. <laughs> he's, he's been through so much. So this is only half of the story believe it or not we've only reached the halfway mark and already like this would have been a satisfying end i think if they had made this the entire story and explored more of bucky being the the head of shield the director of shield um, right they they kind of really skim over that in order to get to this next part of the story but uh, i would have loved to see more of more of them talking about about bucky as the head head of Shield and and facing off against more against Hydra and such, more of Steve as as head of Shield too, because I think we would be looking at three very different versions of Shield: Nick Fury's and Bucky Barnes and Steve Rogers as head of Shield would be a very different organization each time. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, oh, and then there's one other incident that I think is really interesting as well is that Sharon Carter who fell in love with Captain America in the Tales of Suspense days, um, also falls in love with Captain America here, but the Captain America she falls in love with is Bucky. Which me, makes me think that I, you always think of the, their romance as being Sharon and Steve, but it's actually Sharon and mm-hmm. Captain America. She's in love with the idea Apparently. of Captain America rather than Captain America himself. So, she got it from Peggy. Yeah, right. <laughs> So that's that's really interesting there, uh, and that plays heavily at the end of the issue. Some weird art choices by uh, George Tuska. I think of this middle panel here where Captain America is. What what page is this? Um, uh, one sixty nine. On page one sixty nine, uh, page twenty one of this story here, 
Captain America is just a floating head and a hand because right. <laughs> George put this this star this little um, action burst to separate the two characters, but it just looks odd. So I thought that was an odd it, choice. It looks like Cap's head head it's, popped. It's off. just popped right off. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. So, but otherwise, they sneak into the Hydra base and try to take down Hydra. And I tried to find a reference to this gun that Hydra, the the, the Supreme Hydra Commander, has. Uh, this pink gun it's capable of draining off the life force of every living being I'm sure that appears in one of these issues of Strange Tales um, but I could not find it while I was looking for it today so if any of you know you can let us know I don't remember it Yeah, the last half of this issue is basically a, a big giant fight between all of Hydra and, and the Team Captain America uh, we got our 1970s feminism moment here where is that? Um, <laughs> yeah, it's it's just it's just a broad. Oh right. <laughs> I heard that it's not polite to make fun of a lady, and she just beats them all up. They did that a lot in the seventies when they were trying to uh, make female characters more active. Right. You, know, you get this. It's it's very heavy handed, but you get this exact same moment a lot. It's just a woman. I'll show you. Yeah, there's another moment. Oh yeah, right up here few pages later because they they were like take the two take the two men don't worry yeah right, don't what the, is that the punk and the bride and they didn't really pay much <laughs> attention to them and so rick jones says ready to show them how the weaker half of this team can fight and, and sharon <laughs> says i didn't know there was a weaker half rick <laughs> there's a moment here where baron zemo tries to kill kill captain america because and he's really really angry because he's he takes off cap's mask and he's like wait this isn't the captain america that, I, that i'm angry with yeah he gets really pissed poor off. guy yeah <laughs> he's been obsessed with this guy for decades and decades, he forgot yeah. what he looked like <laughs> and and then yeah he, he just turns it around and we find out later that 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 gunshot actually did hit bucky in a bad way and so bucky dies and Sharon is very upset with that, upset with Steve for letting that happen. And that's that's a story element that really doesn't age well. The the kid sidekick, because you know Sharon says you you cheated him out of his life and threw a kid into the horrors of war. And you know of course she's right. It'd be insane for an adult to drag a kid and <laughs> the dangers of war and fighting supervillains and all that. Except now we have whole teams that are built around them being teenagers. True. There are so many kid characters in the Marvel Universe, well, and just in superheroes in general, but in the Marvel Universe, like, we had Spider-Man in the 60s, and we had Rick Jones, who not wasn't really a superhero. And I guess technically all of the X-Men were teenagers at the time, so maybe that counts. Yeah. They weren't treated like teenagers, though. They were basically kind of treated at, like adults. But they yeah, I teenagers. think it feels a little different when a adult is dragging a kid into all this. I mean, not that Captain America ever had to drag Bucky into the fight, but yeah. just <laughs> you just kind of want the adult to be a little more responsible and say, "Well, you're you're too young to get involved in all this danger." Right. Well, and that's uh, one of the people really hated um, All Star Batman, the one by Frank Miller and Jim Lee, uh, because Batman just was like a nutso in that one. <laughs> <laughs> but, and then you really get the sense of like, holy cow, he should not be dragging this kid into this because Batman just <laughs> makes Robin do some terrible things. But uh, yeah, that was that was pretty funny. So yeah, we get to the end of this story, and eventually 
Cap- Captain America puts the costume back on again. Uh, does he? Or yeah, yeah, yeah. And yep. and uh, Rick Jones is still Bucky, and so they continue to do the thing. What I I've, what I and this is probably the '70s now or so. And I what I find interesting is that they even in this book they still skipped over the the '50s. They went right from Captain America survives, right. and then they say it was business as usual through the 1950s. Um, and then in the 1960s, things start to change. That's when Bucky quits being uh, quits quits being the sidekick. Uh, so well, I, I mentioned in the last episode, the 1950s were a period that nothing really happened in Marvel Comics in general because they weren't actively publishing, and or they weren't publishing mm-hmm. superheroes, I should say. Um, and so there's this kind of weird era where it's like we have World War II and we have the Cold War, but we don't have what's in between. Uh, and then this what this issue also just kind of skips over all of that. <laughs> well, what did you think of this issue in general? Uh, well, I I liked it. It was good. It's what what if is supposed to be. You know, you just change a few things and see where it goes from there. Uh, we have lost three Captain Americas in two issues. Though. <laughs> yeah, <right. laughs> I guess the moral of the story is only Steve Rogers can do this job and live. Yeah, right. Well, uh, yeah, he didn't even. Well, I guess he did live in the last one as well. But yeah, he uh, he he's lucky. It's a super serum, super soldier serum that keeps him alive. Like I said, it would have been nice if they had expanded a little bit more on Bucky's shield days. Um, but overall, mm-hmm. I felt the pacing of the story was was really nice. I enjoyed jo- uh, George Tuska's artwork, which I I don't always. Um, he did a couple of Ave- Avengers issues and Champions issues, I think, in the seventies as well, around this time, and I didn't like him as much. It might be to do with the inker. Let's see who is the inker on this on this issue. Russ Jones. I, that is a name I don't know. Russ Jones. I don't either. But I like his inking because. Well, George Tuska is very heavy with his shadows anyway, but the inker mm-hmm. gives it this nice brush, like thick brush work that that makes it look really, really nice. I like a lot mm-hmm. of these thick lines that he that he does in here in the shadows and the clouds and such. Um, it reminds me sort of of Klaus Janssen, the similar kind of style that he goes for in his inking. I'm looking at the page with the funeral, and that's that's really nicely inked, nice and somber. Yeah, they do that really well, and I like the kind of the monotone uh, color scheme mm-hmm. for that one panel to make it look a little bit more drab and dreary. In fact, that whole page, the only thing that really pops is the yellow yeah. hair. It's, the blonde hair. It's very cool, yeah. Okay, well, I think that that does it for this issue. Um, Pierce, thanks for joining us. I'm glad that someone has, was brave enough. Yeah, what's what's with all these shy fanboys? What? Come on out, guys. I, I think so too. They, everybody should get on board. And Pierce, you're welcome back anytime. Uh, if you want to join us again next time, that's uh, you're more than welcome to be here. Hopefully, we can have some other people on board. And let's see what is next on the list. What if the Fantastic Four had different superpowers? Yeah. So just before we move on, I wanted to talk about the letter page in this issue, in issue number six. The complete collection includes the letter pages, and there's one here that I wanted to read. It's about what if number four, the one with the invaders. It says, uh, what if number four was great, but its plotting was far more rushed than the first two. An example is that you show the human torch frying Hitler. Bad boy Roy, Captain America, 
2.11 shows Hitler getting his brain removed and sent to Arnim Zola. It is a July magazine, and what if it came out in August? And then this is Jan Langdon from Alberta, Canada. She says, this being my first no prize, I'd like it in bronze with a teak frame. <laughs> and the response from the editor, and the editor of this issue, I think, is Archie Goodwin. Um, yeah, oh, Roy and Archie, both editors on this one. Uh, he says, we're, over, and we're overjoyed to give it to you, pal, if only because you give us a chance to comment on the very thing you mentioned. You see, Jack Kirby was at that time handling Captain America all on his own as writer, artist, and editor, and didn't tell Roy, Archie, or anybody else about his projected refurbishing of World War II mythology. In the meantime, Roy had always wished to bring into the aforementioned Marvel Universe the scene in Young Men No. 24 which revived the Human Torch in the early 1950s, in which Hitler died at the hands of our original Flaming Fury. And I only bring that up because I didn't know that that scene that I thought was so important was actually part of uh, an old issue, that Young Men No. 24. So he's just referencing something that has already happened, which I think is important and probably trumps the Jack Kirby story uh, in Captain America 211. So that's interesting. I just wanted to point that out. Now, uh, onto this issue. Fantastic Four. What if Fantastic Four had different powers? Written by Roy Thomas and drawn by Jim Craig and Rick Holberg. They had penciler, joint penciler duties on this one, uh, inked by Sam Granger. And I think you can tell uh, about halfway through, the art does start to change. Uh, they, well, maybe not even halfway through. Sort of, um, you have to go page by page and see. You can especially tell in the faces which artist is which uh, as they as you go through, because you do get a little bit of a different style. But all in all, it's very consistent. The first four pages are all present day. Fantastic Four, uh, like stuff that that's happening in contemporary time. They're fighting some unnamed villains and it takes up a lot of real, real estate in one issue to have four pages de dedicated to that and then they spend four pages on the retelling the origin story from Fantastic Four number one so we have eight pages of stuff that that we kind of don't really even need in order to move forward now I say we don't need it but we actually do need it uh, the reason why we need it is because we need for the context of this story to make sense we need to know what the original Fantastic Four's powers are so we get those first four pages, which is a battle which in which they're all demonstrating all of their powers uh, so that we, you know, if you don't know anything about the Fantastic Four, now we're up to speed. And then the next four are telling us the origin story as it originally unfolded, and then it goes into the origin story as it is newly unfolding for this one. We didn't need both of those things. We could have had one or the other. I would argue we only need the origin story, or maybe we don't. I don't even know. We probably didn't need both of them. But... That's where it's at, and then that brings us into uh, the new, uh, up to date with the new story in which they all get their own powers. And we see that they start to react negatively to the cosmic rays, uh, but not the same way as we are familiar with in Fantastic Four number one. They all start to feel different things. And the first person to get some new powers or to exhibit new powers is Ben Grimm. Um, instead of being turned into a monster, uh, he gets these big wings. And this is important because now he can, if he can hide his wings at least, he can still look normal. This is a new, this is, this is a new territory for us as readers to experience a Ben Grimm who's never known to be a monster. Uh, if, 
like a physical deformed creature. He just has these wings. So that's that's interesting. And then what happens to Human Torch? He turns metal. Uh, they say he's a human robot. He must have mechanical interiors, but we don't really get a good sense of that. He's just kind of metal-plated like Colossus. And then Sue is the one who has stretchy powers. Very interesting that out of all of these four, she is the only one who gets a power that was represented by you know, the original Fantastic Four's powers. And then the last one, they don't know what happened to Reed. This is the most unusual one of them all. He gets turned into a big brain. So all of these powers showcase some of their interests rather than showing sort of their emotional state like it was before. If you go, if you think back about Fantastic Four, now the reason why they got their powers has been sort of, it's been changed over the years. There have been some writers who were like, well, the the Fantastic Four have the powers because of the four elements, you know, water, wind, fire, and earth. And then sometimes it's like, well, no, they have their powers because Reed has a a flexible mind, so he's got a flexible body. Johnny's the hothead, so he's on fire. Ben is a tough guy, so he's made of rock. And Sue is kind of shy, and so she turns into like self uh, self-conscious and so she turns invisible that kind of thing in this one it's their interests ben is a pilot so he gets wings johnny likes cars so he becomes mechanical himself sue they really just say that she's flexible which is kind of she she okay hold on let me see if i can find the actual the actual the text where they say why she becomes flexible here Susan Storm's pliable personality has enabled her to adapt to mold herself to fit in with her more dominating friends. Loose connection there compared to the other ones, um, but that's the way it is. And of course, Reed is now, because he's his interest, of course, is science and his brain is always his biggest asset, that he has now become 100% a brain. I like how that plays out later on, and we'll get to that. Uh, so, and we're taken into the first mission, and the first mission is to prevent these goons from stealing a necklace that is part of Blackbeard the pirate's treasure. Uh, so, that is important, of course, because Doctor Doom, in the very first appearance of Doctor Doom in Fantastic Four number five, which uh, the editor's note in this issue mistakenly says Fantastic Four number four, uh, he's after Blackbeard's treasure. He sends the Fantastic Four back in time in order to steal their treasure. And to steal Blackbeard's treasure, and they they end up tricking Doom in the end and whatever. But that's that's the first appearance of Doctor Doom. So this is the first appearance of Doctor Doom, or the first meeting between Doctor Doom and this new version of the Fantastic Four. So he's also after Blackbeard's treasure, so it remains consistent. However, he doesn't send them back in time. There's one page where it says that they've met the same bad guys. They still meet the Mole Man and the the Skrulls and Miracle Man and Namor, and now it's Dr. Doom's turn. So they're all playing out. But Doom is able to figure out that Reed is the big brain. He just puts two and two together somehow. It's a little bit of a stretch, but haha, stretch, fantastic, Mr. Fantastic, get it. Uh, but So what he does, and this is a great scene for Dr. Doom, because he uses his brilliant mind to manipulate the way Reed Richards thinks. This is something that Doom, when he's not boasting and overconfident about himself, He's actually a really good manipulator. He goes to Reed and he says, I bet you still long for the touch of Sue Storm. And Reed is like, yes, I do. I still love her even though I'm just a brain. And he's like, well, I can make a body for you if you let me into your 
your your place here and give me access to your materials and so reed does because he's desperate to long to long for the human touch and uh, and doom manages to kind of screw things up by being an egomaniac as he usually does so the the fantastic four come in and and uh, take care of business and at one point they are all they chase doom back to latveria and and doom traps them in separate rooms that all have death traps that are appropriate to their own powers and this is something that doom does all the time including in the first issue that he appears in fantastic four number five so we see all of the, the fantastic four using their powers and they do a really good job of of improvising separately and also acting as a team when they come together again. So um, credit to Roy for being able to fully flesh out these characters, even though we've only known them for a number of pages. I think he does a really good job. Of course, we kind of already know their basic archetypal characteristics, so that helps. But still, these are still new characters. Uh, in the meantime, Reed is able to uh, take on Doom with his mind powers, whatever they may be. And I love this ending in the end. He's able to transfer his mind over to Doom's body. And Doom is now Mr. Fantastic. He becomes a member of the new Fantastic Four. <laughs> so there we go. That's the issue in a nutshell. I thought I, I really enjoyed this one. The The only thing that was kind of weird is that, like, is is this really going to be, um, like, does, does Sue really continue to fall in love with Reed? Enough time has passed that she has started to develop these feelings for Ben, which they kind of hint at in the first few issues of Fantastic Four anyway. Um, but I guess, you know, fate has it that Reed and Sue are together, and even in this timeline, it's going to be, even if his face is horribly scarred and he has to hide behind his suit of armor the whole time. Does Reed have to hide behind the armor? He doesn't, but he decides to, he chooses to do so. I think that it's sort of ridiculous that Reed turns into a giant brain, but for the sake of the story, that's kind of what needed to happen, because if he still had any sort of human body he would have been still been able to stay close to sue and we wouldn't have had the same confrontation between doom and reed um, and i like that that confrontation between the two it's kind of the battle of the brains between the two of them and it usually is it all it always is a battle of smarts is a battle of wits but in this case when you can't even get physical uh, it it's definitely more of a battle of the minds, and so the two of them are really going at it um, with their they're like challenging each other mentally, and and that was a nice show off. It's also nice because Doom had to kind of take on the team in two fronts with the the mind assault from Reed, but then also the physical assaults from the other three. So he had to to kind of be on on both sides, and he ended up doing a really good job with, in the battle. Uh, nice artwork I've said already from from uh, Jim Craig. Does a really nice job with his layouts and such. Tells the story well. Nice flow to the action. In a very 1970s kind of style. Not much more I can say about that. It's, uh, yeah, this is a fun issue. I hope that they branch out a little bit more because so far we've only really had Fantastic Four and Avengers issues. And yes, the first one was about Spider-Man, but... It was mostly a Fantastic Four story because he joined up with the Fantastic Four. So I think in the next few issues, we are going to see uh, some more of these stories. Um, let's see, coming up is... Oh, the next one is a Spider-Man-focused story, so that's good. And then we have Daredevil and 
a bunch of oh actually we're gonna get some good variety coming up here so that's good i'm happy to see that that'll be fun uh, i hope that you enjoyed this talk this has been a great uh, conversation once again by myself i need everybody to join me come on people i know that you're out there i know you're listening and so come and join me especially some of you regular podcasters that i that i deal with i'm sure you love to be on this this stream at some point don't make me beg just kidding i'm not going to beg i'm just going to ask over and over again so have a good day everybody and thank you for watching my live stream and we will see you later Thank you.